Imagine for a minute that you came to church this morning, walked in the doors, grabbed a donut and coffee, if you do that, and moved down here toward the chapel to come into the worship service five minutes before the service started, as you all always do. (laughs) And yet, instead of being allowed into the chapel to find your seat, the doors were closed and there was one or two ushers standing in front of each one of the doors, preventing anyone from coming in. The first person who came along, because they were here early anyway, was probably, would probably be okay with that. All right, something's going on. They need to fix something. They need to do whatever, and then the doors will be open, and I can get in. But imagine that as time gets closer and closer to 10 o'clock and more and more people are gathering in the hallway outside the chapel and the doors are not opening and the ushers are giving no explanation whatsoever and you can see in through the panes of glass me standing here with a stupid grin on my face and nothing else is happening in the room and you're wondering what on earth is going on. And yet more time passes. Now it's after 10, it's 10.05, it's 10.15. What would your response be? Well, some of you would leave. You would say, hey, I didn't want to go to church anyway. And so if they're not going to let me in, I'm on my way out. Others of you would wait patiently. You would figure, well, something must be going on. And so I'll just hang out here and eventually, surely they'll let us in. If for no other reason than to collect the offering, right? But some of you might get impatient. Some of you would be asking, like, what's going on? You would be asking the ushers standing there, what's happening? Why can't we go inside? Why does he stand there with a stupid grin on his face like this? And all of this is designed, this story, this fictional story that will never happen, is designed to prove to you a point that I think you will agree with anyway, which is this, that people do not handle waiting well. When we have to wait around, especially when there is no seeming reason for waiting, and the waiting becomes interminable, and we have no idea when the waiting will end, We're not hooked up for that. We're not designed to stand around waiting endlessly without any idea of when the waiting will end or what the purpose of the waiting is. People don't handle waiting well. Now, we we all know that waiting is a fact of life. And so we're geared to tolerate a certain amount of waiting, waiting in line when we go to the bank or to a restaurant or whatever. We can deal with some of that, but we expect our wait to be brief, Or we expect, if it's not going to be brief, that some sort of explanation or some accommodation will be made for us, that there'll be some extra blessing that comes our way in terms of like a gift or a discount or something that will make it worth our while for waiting. But even with that, if you make people wait for too long, they will either give up or they'll get angry. And sometimes people do extreme things when they've had to wait for too long. And that's because people do not handle waiting well. And here's another truth. Even when we have to wait, we have a strong tendency to waste the time that we spend waiting. We have a strong tendency to waste time while we are waiting. Now, some of that's inevitable. If you were not expecting to wait and you didn't bring a book with you, or you're in a situation where there's no one else to talk to, some time may be wasted waiting in ways that we can't get around. It's just a fact of life sometimes. 
But the truth of the matter is that a lot of times we spend waiting, we don't use it productively. We don't spend time getting to know people around us or talking with people around us. That would be a good use of the time that we spend waiting. Or we could spend that time maybe communicating, now that we all carry around these devices in our pockets, we could communicate via email with people who are trying to contact us. We could make phone calls that need to be made. We could do productive things. But instead, most of the time, we just stand there doing nothing, or we take out those devices and we play Angry Birds or whatever the game of the week is that people are playing now. We do not handle waiting well. We don't like it when we have to wait, and when we do have to wait, there's a strong tendency for us not to be productive with the time that we spend waiting. Here in our passage this morning, Jesus anticipates that the disciples are going to have to wait, and that they are not ready to wait, and that they need to be prepared for what that wait will look like. And we see all of this described for us in the very first verse of our passage this morning. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, we read, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. And here's the reason that Jesus told the parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that God's kingdom was going to appear at once. Jesus anticipates that the disciples think the kingdom is going to arrive as soon as he goes into Jerusalem this time. But Jesus knows that there's going to be a waiting period between his life on earth the first time and the arrival of the kingdom that he has been talking about. And so he's going to tell them a parable. And part of the purpose of that parable is to help them because people do not handle waiting well. But God's people must learn to handle waiting well. In a sense, every single one of us, from the first disciples of Jesus on to today, are waiting. We're waiting for that kingdom that Jesus promised. And Jesus wants us to understand that waiting around for the coming of Christ and the arrival of that kingdom is not idle time that we can waste as if we were standing in line or like people waiting for a bus. Instead, there is something that we are supposed to be doing with our waiting. We are to learn as the people of God to handle our waiting well. And the waiting I'm talking about here, of course, is the kingdom of God. We have to wait for God's kingdom to come at his time. Jesus has been saying for around three years that the kingdom of God is near. And so the disciples that have been following around, that he called and others who joined him, have been hearing the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. And they anticipate because Jesus has told them already before this journey began that he must go to Jerusalem. And so his urgency about going to Jerusalem and the necessity that he feels about going there indicates to the disciples, maybe the time is here. And what happens next in this passage really, really would stoke somebody's interest that perhaps the kingdom is finally here after all this time. And so Jesus anticipates that the disciples are going to expect the kingdom to arrive. And he knows that that is not what's going to happen, that there is going to be a period of time before the kingdom comes. And so Jesus tells this parable to prepare the disciples for the inevitable wait that all of us have. 
until his kingdom arrives. Now, before we dive into the parable, I'm going to describe for you the three people, or three types of people, I should say, that this parable describes for us. As we read the passage together earlier, and as we go through it, I'm sure you will see the parallels that Jesus wants us to draw. But just to make sure that you do, I want to point out what they are. Jesus is going to talk, first of all, in this parable about a man of noble birth who ultimately becomes king. This, of course, is a reference to Jesus. And so when we read about that man, we're reading about Jesus. He also is going to talk about his servants. And this corresponds to the disciples, the people who believed Jesus' message and were waiting for that kingdom to come and were anticipating its coming and wanted to do what Jesus said. Those are the servants in this parable. And then the Bible talks about the subjects, and that's everybody else. Everybody who is not Jesus or one of his disciples is one of the subjects of the kingdom. And so keep these in mind as we walk through this kingdom parable together. Let's look together again at Luke chapter 19, verse 11, which says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Verse 12, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And these verses begin the parable. And they tell us that Jesus is going away, but before he goes, he is going to invest some responsibility in the disciples, and he's going to have some expectations of the disciples upon his return. And so while we have to wait for Jesus to come at his time, the Bible also tells us that while we wait, God has given us work to do. God has given us work to do. And this corresponds to the minas that were given to the disciples. Look together at verse 13. It says, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Now what you are to understand is that each of these ten servants got one mina. Okay, There's ten servants and there's ten minas. All right? Each servant gets one. And the command of the man of noble birth, the command of the expected king, the command of Jesus to the disciples in verse 13 is this. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, one mina was the equivalent of about three months' salary for the average worker. And so we're not talking about a wealth of money, but we're not talking about pennies either. What the nobleman, what the expected king in this passage gives to these men is a significant amount of money. Not enough to live your rest of your life on, but not something that you can just squander away. And he tells them, find something productive to do with this mina. Take this money that I'm giving you and invest it in some way. Get me a return for this money so that I'll have more money when I get back than what I gave you. Those are the instructions that the expected king gave to his disciples. And that's because while we wait, we have work to do. And so this corresponds to us as followers of Jesus Christ. We're waiting for Jesus to arrive and for his kingdom to come. But Jesus is trying to tell us here that, that uh, it is our responsibility as his disciples to be productive, to take whatever it is we have that God has given to us 
and to do something with it, something for the good of his kingdom, so that his kingdom is enriched when he comes. But notice that there's another response to this as well. In verse 14, it says, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, I've already told you that the subjects of the kingdom are different than the servants. The servants correspond to the disciples of Jesus Christ. The subjects of Jesus Christ is everyone else. That is, all unbelievers, all other people. Everyone who's not Jesus or a disciple is one of the subjects of the kingdom. And in the story here, the king to be has to go away and be appointed king, and then he comes back and reigns as king over this territory. But the Bible tells us here the subjects of the kingdom send word that they don't want him to come. Now, what's very interesting about this is that Jesus is in the southern part of Israel, okay? He's in Judah or Judea. And this southern part of Israel, of course, all of Israel, you understand, was under the subjection of the Roman Empire. Now, there were client kings who served in various different districts, around the world under the reign of the Roman Empire, but everyone was subject to the Roman emperor. And this area down south in Judea was actually ruled over by different rulers than Galilee, the northern part where Jesus was from and where he spent most of his time. They had different human rulers under the uh, larger umbrella of the Roman Empire. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We know that he is in Jericho or near Jericho at this time, which means he's in that southern area of Judea. And way back in 4 BC, all right, which I hate to tell you was actually after Jesus was born. Jesus was not born on 0 BC or or whatever. He was actually born a few years before Christ, and that's because the people who calculated the dates made a few mistakes. They got really close, though. So, But... um, (laughs) After Jesus was born, there was a man named Archelaus, and Luke told us about him, actually, earlier on in the gospel according to Luke. He was to succeed his father, Herod the Great, as the ruler of this area that Jesus is in right now, this southern part of Israel. And guess what? Before he became the ruler, he went away to Rome. He had to go to Rome and lobby the emperor, the the uh, Caesar, to become the ruler of this area. And guess what? People didn't want him to become the ruler. And so they actually sent a delegation. People in his own family sent a delegation to Rome to say, don't push Archelaus on us. But he became king anyway. And so it's interesting that Jesus creates this parable, but he draws from some of the history of this area. The people who lived there knew about this stuff, even though it happened when they were children or before they were born. It still informed part of their life, and they were familiar with this kind of a story. And so Jesus tells this story because he is going to, in a sense, live this out. He's living among them now. He's going to die in Jerusalem and be raised to life, but then he's going to ascend into heaven. He's not going to set up the kingdom on earth. He's going to ascend into heaven, and he's going to say, I will return at some point and set up my kingdom then. And during this time when Jesus is away, the time in which we now live, there are some who are opposing him as king. Unbelievers are doing everything they can to keep anything, um, anything remotely connected to the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness from having any power on this earth at all. 
And those of us who are disciples, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are given a charge. And that charge is to use whatever God has given to us during this time productively. Like each of the ten servants was given one mina, each follower of Jesus Christ has been given some kind of spiritual gift. And we've, given, we've, we've been given some kind of stewardship. We've been given financial resources, the ability to make wealth or to make an income. We have time on this earth, time in which we can talk to people. And we can talk to, to them in ways that give them the gospel message or encourage them if they are already believers, or in ways that just kill time talking about the weather. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that he has given us a charge, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, those of us who count ourselves as his followers, those of us who are his disciples, have been given not only something of value to use, but a charge to use that thing productively. While we wait, God has given us work to do. And that work that we are given to do ultimately revolves around what we call the Great Commission. The final words Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended and left this earth are the marching orders for us as the church. They are what God has commanded us to do. They are the productive work that we are supposed to be doing. And I know you're familiar with these words, but we'll look at them again. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ is away. His kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. But as his followers, we are not waiting around and should not be waiting around like people waiting for a bus to arrive. Instead, God has given us a charge and he's given us some tools to work with. And he has said, be productive. Use the time that you have while you are waiting to produce something of value for me. God has given us work to do. And that work is the work of the Great Commission. And this is not all that life is about. The Bible tells us that it is God's will and it is pleasing in God's sight for us to have families, to enjoy recreation, to earn a living and steward the money that we make with that living well. We need time to eat and time to sleep to maintain the life that we have on this earth. But in the midst of all of the things of life that we do, we have other times in our lives. Or as we are doing those things, as we are having families, as we are eating meals, as we're going to work, we have opportunities to take what God has given to us and to put it to work for his kingdom. And what Jesus is telling the disciples here is don't waste the time that I have given you and the talents, the abilities that I've given to you during the time that I'm away. Instead, use it productively. Do the work that I have given to you to do. And so as the parable continues, we learn why. Why do we do this? Because when the wait is over, God will judge us based on our work. When the wait is over, 
we will be accountable to God for how we have spent this time. Look at verse 15 as the parable continues. Despite the best efforts of some, he was made king, however, verse 15 says, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And so there is going to be a day of accountability where the, where the king, in this case, calls forth his servants to find out how well they have spent the time and the money he gave them, how it's been invested and used, and what the outcome has been. And what we find out here is that different disciples have different results, that there is not a uniformity at all among the productivity of disciples. We continue reading in verse 16, it's where we see the first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Now, again, there were 10 servants, each given one mina. Jesus is only going to tell us about three different servants. He's not going to tell us the outcome of all 10 because really all 10 of them fall into one of these categories, one of these three categories. And so the first one comes, and he has been incredibly productive. He says in verse 16, your mina has earned 10 more. That's an incredible result. I don't know what what, uh, biotech stocks or what high-tech stocks this guy found to invest in. I don't know where he put this money, but he put it somewhere that created a whole lot more money. And he was very productive with the time and the money that the master gave to him. He took what was a little bit of money, about three months' salary, and made it into quite a nice pile of money for the master. And the master is pleased with this. The scripture says in verse 17, Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. And so he continues to to describe the situation and to talk about um, what would happen when the master comes. And he says that God is going to judge us based on our work. And this work has, this judgment of God, I should say, has two principles. The first one we've seen illustrated right here. And that is this. Those who are trustworthy with a little can be trusted with a lot. Now, I said already that this mina is not a huge amount of money, but it's not an insignificant amount of money. Compared to what this productive servant gets next, though, the mina and the ten that he earned from it is pretty small. Notice what the master says again in verse 17. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. One mina which was used in productive ways, shows that this servant was faithful and was diligent with what he was given. He was wise in the way he applied this money. And therefore, the master concludes, you will be a good servant for me in leading part of my new territory as king. And so he invests in this man even more authority. Those who are trustworthy with a little can be trusted with much more. And the Bible says that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, on the day in which Christ sets up his kingdom and calls us to account, that he will reward us based on our productivity on this earth. That those who have been faithful with what God has given to us, the money he's given us, the time he's given us, the opportunities to talk to others, as we have been faithful in spreading the gospel message, and in baptizing those who come to faith in Christ, and in discipling them, teaching them to observe what Jesus commanded, if we are faithful in these things, and if we are productive in these things, 
the reward we receive in eternity is not just great wealth. It is that. You'll see in a minute that this guy gets to keep the 10 minus he made. He doesn't have to give them all back to the king. They're his. But in addition to that, he receives another level of service to the king. But the passage goes on and describes another servant in verse 18. The second one came, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Now, this is not as great a result as the first guy had, but it's still quite a great return. Taking one mina and producing five more with it is a good result from his investment. And so correspondingly, the master says, verse 19, the master answered, you take charge of five cities. Again, this shows the principle, those who are trustworthy with a little can be trusted with more. And this is how it will be when we stand before God and give account to him for how we spent our lives. But there's another kind of servant that's described in this passage in verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Now I find this very interesting because here's a man who was given something to use. He was told to use it. And what is his response? He wraps it up in a piece of cloth. Why would he do this? Was it because he wanted it to be nice and shiny when he returned it to the master? And so maybe he polished it with said cloth first and then tied it up in the cloth so that it wouldn't get scratched in his pocket or his pocketbook. Maybe he didn't want, maybe he was going to put it away with his other money, but he didn't want it to get mixed in with his own funds. And so he's trying to keep the master's funds segregated so he doesn't accidentally spend it. And when the, the master calls him for it to account and says, well, I'm sorry, I mixed it up with my own money and I spent it, it's gone. I don't know why he wrapped it up in a cloth, but I know this, saving what he was given was not what he was told to do. Saving what he was given was a disobedient response to the command to be productive. And so this brings us to the second principle on which God judges people. The first is that those who are trustworthy with a little can be trusted with much more. But the second one is that those who waste what they have will lose what they have to those who are trustworthy. Notice the master's response in uh, verse 21. Well, this is the guy's reasoning, I should say, in verse 21. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. He says, I've watched you in action, master. And I know that you are the kind of guy who is hard on people who don't produce. And that you expect results even from work that you didn't do. You like passive streams of income. And I was afraid that I might not be able to take what you gave me and make something good out of it. And so in order to preserve it, and to keep you from punishing me and whipping me or whatever you would do. I just tried to preserve it because I know that you are a tough taskmaster. Well, the king is unimpressed by this argument. And he goes on and says in verse 22, the master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when it came back, I could have collected it with interest? What he's saying here is something like our banking system. Why didn't you open a savings account, for goodness sake? And even if it only got a, you know, a percentage point of interest, it's better than nothing. It's better than coming back to me exactly as I gave it to you shiny and unused. And again, this 
maps to our accountability as the disciples of Jesus Christ. God is someone who is very into productivity. If you look at the way he created this world, you can take one seed from a fruit tree and plant it in the ground, and that one seed will produce, if you do it right, if you cultivate it right, a large tree that will produce many more pieces of fruit with many more seeds inside of it. And God designed the world to work this way, that from a little, treated well, much abundance can result. And he tells us that if we are going to be faithful servants of his, we should take whatever it is that he's given to us and expect him to bless it if we put it to work for his kingdom cause. But notice what happens to this man, according to the servant, or according to uh, the king, what happens to the servant, according to the king. In verse 24, he said, Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. They don't like this. It seems unfair. Sir, he, they said, he has ten, already has ten. Then he replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. That's the first principle of productivity. The second principle is this. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The Bible says that there is coming a day of accountability for all of those who call themselves Christians, for all of us who say that we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And on that day of accountability, we are going to review with the Lord the time that we spent on this earth. Each of us has a different amount of time. And the investment that God made in us. Each of us has different abilities to serve the Lord. Each of us has different amounts of money in terms of the productivity that we have in this life. How are you spending the time that you have on this earth? How are you using the money that you earn from your job or your investments? How are you using the gifts that God has given to you? God expects us to create something from his kingdom, to take the seeds that he has given to us and plant them so that more people come to faith in Christ, and those who come to faith in Christ are cultivated and taught to become productive disciples themselves. God created his kingdom to be a place that grows exponentially as the servants of the kingdom use the tools and the time that the master has given to them. And so this is how we are to learn to handle waiting well. It's not that we become really patient and waiting around for Jesus to return. It's that we become really active and use what he's given to us so that there will be blessing for him upon his return. It doesn't really matter how much you have. And it doesn't matter if your productivity is less than someone else in the Lord's work. What matters is, did you do anything with what God gave you? Did you do anything with it? That's the standard. And so as we consider this passage for ourselves and as we apply it to ourselves in this life, what we learn in this passage is this. Don't waste your waiting. Learn to wait well. Waiting well means doing something productive until Jesus comes with whatever it is that he's given to you. And the truth of the matter is that you're waiting And how you use it reveals a lot about you. It reveals who you really are. That's really um, one of the key takeaways from this passage of Scripture. 
that the people in this story who are not Jesus, the way they spent the time and the mina that they were given reveals something about who they are. First of all, let's talk about those who oppose Jesus. If you oppose the reign of Jesus, you're his enemy. In verse 14, we read, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to become our king. And the Bible talks about how unbelievers in this world use unrighteous means to try to suppress the truth of Jesus Christ. And if we drop down to verse 27, we see those people end up punished by the Lord. Verse 27 says, But those enemies of mine who did not want to be the king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This corresponds, of course, to the eternal death and eternity in hell. And if you are someone who opposes the reign of Jesus, that is, you don't believe in the gospel message, and you don't serve the king as one of his servants, there's coming a day of accountability for you when you will be punished by the Lord Jesus Christ for not receiving him and not being uh, part of his kingdom because you're his enemy. If you oppose the reign of Jesus, you are his enemy. Secondly, if you waste your time in this age, you are Christ's enemy in disguise. If you waste the time that you have in this age, you may call yourself a servant. But the truth of the matter is you're one of the enemies of Christ. And I get that from, in part, from verse 26, where he says, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they think they have will be taken away from them. This is a principle that Jesus taught again and again. There are people who are clinging on to eternal life because they prayed a prayer, and they said, I believed in Jesus. They don't do anything for Jesus. They don't go to church even on a regular basis. But they're holding on to that idea that I prayed to receive Jesus. And so I'm saved, even though there's no fruit in their life. The Bible says such a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who is like that, who is clinging to a profession of faith, but there's no fruit of of godliness in their life. There's no one they've ever brought to Christ. There's no one they've ever discipled. That a person like this should not expect to be received into the kingdom of God because they're an enemy in disguise. Now, Jesus told a similar story to this. It's not an exact parallel, but it's very close. In the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 28 through 30, and you can talk about this in your small groups coming this week, but I want to show you this passage, which is very similar to this one. And notice what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 28 through 30. So take the bag of gold from him. So instead of a mina, it was a bag of gold. And give it to the one who has 10 bags. That sounds a lot like what happened in the minus passage, right? For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. Jesus just said this right here in Luke. But notice the next thing that Matthew says here. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are, some, there are many people in this world who think they are Christians, but they don't do anything for the master. If you're one of them and you're holding on to something you said in the past or did in the past, you're living your life for yourself. You're hiding whatever God has given to you, and you're doing nothing productive for his kingdom. Please understand, you may think you're a disciple, but the king doesn't agree. There is an eternity waiting for many people who call themselves Christians, but who never knew Christ and never truly lived the Christian life. If you waste your life in this age, you are Christ's enemy in disguise. Finally, if you serve God with what you have, you are a true servant of Jesus Christ. In verse 17a, Jesus says to the productive one, Well done, good servant. 
And other passages of Scripture tell us that this will be the testimony that God gives to every believer. No matter how productive you are relative to other believers, if you serve God faithfully in this age with whatever it is you have and you, you do whatever you can according to your ability to serve the Lord, you can expect to hear these words, well done, servant, enter into my joyous kingdom. And so how you spend the time waiting reveals a lot about who you are. But also this, how you spend eternity is, how, is determined by how well you wait for Jesus to return. I've already really talked about this. That those who don't serve Jesus, those who oppose him, and even those who think they're serving him, but they don't do anything with what they've been giving, they have an eternity awaiting for them apart from Jesus Christ. The Bible says that good things are waiting for those who wait for Jesus well. God is waiting to praise you as his good and faithful servant if you are productive in this life for him. God is waiting to reward you for your faithful, productive servant if you use what God has given to you. But the Bible also says this, punishment is waiting for those who oppose Jesus while we wait. And so as you think about your life and your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, what is the evidence of your service for Christ? In what way are the things that you, doing, you are doing with your life and the money that you have and the time that you have, in what ways do those map to the Great Commission, to the productivity of the kingdom of God? Are you using the time and the abilities you have to serve the Lord so that more people become followers of Jesus Christ or so that those who are followers of Jesus Christ get stronger as they are taught God's word? Are you investing your money in God's Word, giving to this local church and to others who are serving the Lord in the mission field and elsewhere? Are you taking whatever it is God's given to you and are you investing it productively for His work? Don't waste your waiting. Learn to wait well.